This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show Monday to Friday, 10 to 1. You can listen live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker and on the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, a fascinating chat with David Owen, Lord Owen. Do you know, he was Foreign Secretary at the age of 38. Made me feel very old uh, and like I'd underachieved, uh, to be honest. Uh, we talk about that, how he first got into politics, uh, the breaking away, to for, uh, the gang of four forming the SDP, what he thinks about about politics today and his theory uh, that uh, certain prime ministers suffer from hubris syndrome and basically lose the plots. That's coming up in just a moment. Well, the Economist panel in a sec, the night, night at the Marriott and now on a Friday, James Marriott and India Knight uh, will be here. But first, as we like to on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Jeremy Hunt is a fan of the film which won all the Oscars. Enterprise, employment, Education everywhere. Yeah, I think that's what it was called. Uh, the trouble is, his pillars of the, co- the economy make him sound like he's at a rave. Now move on to my second E. Wow. Uh, we learned that Keir Starmer isn't big on self-awareness. He comes here today with these mealy-mouthed platitudes. We learned that the Labour leader uh, <laughs> thought that Tory MPs have got out of perspective on the BBC. Nobody telling what his front bench colleague Lucy Powell was saying. The much-loved sports presenter is taken off air for tweeting something the government doesn't like. It sounds more like Putin's Russia to me. Uh, We learn that Tory MP Scott Benton has got a loose grasp of maths. We simply can't accept hundreds of millions of people who would no doubt look to come here for a better life. Hundreds of millions. Uh, we learned that Rishi Sunak knows exactly who's to blame for Tory donor Richard Sharp being the chairman of the BBC. Richard Sharp was appointed by government before my time, before I was Prime Minister. Wait till he finds out he was Chancellor when Richard Sharp got the job. Uh, we learned that Joe Biden is keen to get an invite to Rishi Sunak's Californian mansion. Stanford man and uh, still has a home here in California. That's why I'm being very nice to him. Maybe he'll invite me to his home here in California. And we learned that work and pension secretary Mel Stride uh, might be trying to get everyone else off the golf, golf course and back to work, but he's looking forward to a return to the fairways. I did take a golf lesson once, and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a huge go- uh, hole that I was uh, a fairway that I was driving down, but I did get a hole in one. That's what we learned this week. Now it's time for this. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yes, it's new for a Friday. All new. It's not Thursday, it's Friday. Uh, we say very good morning to India Knight. Morning, India. Morning, Matt. Morning, James. Uh, morning to James. Morning, James. Good morning. Lovely, 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 lovely. Are you, either of you on TikTok? Are you on TikTok, James? I was briefly, but I felt, I felt it was bad for me, um, so I left in quite short order. In what way was it bad for you? It was just—it was so disorientating. All these very frenetic videos of people dancing along to songs, and I had the sensation that I'd finally um, become too old for this kind of thing. <laughs> I do have be real though. My my thing is be real. Oh, that really is for the young people, isn't it? The be real. Uh, describe. Although in fact. Explain to the listeners what Be Real is, James. 
Be Real is uh, is an app on your phone and it notifies you uh, once every day at a random time to take a picture of yourself and what you're doing. And then you see what all your friends are doing at that particular time. Uh, I have Giles Corrin on Be Real, is my Be Real claim to fame. So I'm very familiar with the inside of Giles Corrin's kitchen. <laughs> uh, India, are you on the TikToks or indeed the Be Reels? No, I'm not on the Be Reels. I think the point of the Be Reels is that you... Um, you you're, you're unadorned you're not using a filter and you haven't sort of posed your your photographs i quite like the idea of that i am a bit on the tiktoks in a lurky kind of way um because i like videos of corgis <laughs> it's such a ridiculous time drain i like videos of corgis i quite like to watch people dancing i quite like watching drag queens put on their makeup and I quite like cleaning hacks and before you know it 45 minutes has passed and somebody's shouting for something this is the problem this is the problem because I'm I'm on the TikToks a bit uh, and I've uploaded some things and some of them have done better than others but then you do just start. I'm just scrolling through it now and you're like oh that's oh look there's an MP there because I was following MP trying to convince myself it's for work um, uh, and then it's just not, you're completely right, it's, it's not for work when it's people jigging about. Um, it's never for work, and the MPs are terrible on it. The MPs are terrible. So, in fact, this is, this is obviously why we're talking about it, because the government's banned TikTok from official government devices. But then the Energy Secretary, Grant Shapps, posted a video saying he wouldn't be leaving the app on his personal device. Uh, his account, though, is absolutely mad. It's like, it's a mixture of movie references, pop music, memes, and then sort of trips to the Generation Welling Hatfield Careers Fair. And so, in fact, this is one of his worst performing videos. Amazingly, 874 people have viewed this. Best of luck to you guys. Uh, this is very going to be a fantastic day. I think I can declare it formally open. Thanks very much. Grant Shapps opening a careers fair on TikTok. I'm not sure that's what um, TikTok was really for. Uh, Matt Hancock's account uh, is much, slightly better produced. Some of his videos have got over a million views. Here he is staring into the camera for a Q&A with his followers, answering whether they'd rather fight a duck-sized horse or a horse-sized duck. Nicole, what a ridiculous question. Obviously, I'd far, far rather fight a horse-sized duck because a duck-sized horse would still have those sharp little back feet that would be able to kick you in the shin for Jamel, if I was asked to be the next James Bond, I would leap at the chance, but sadly, don't think it's gonna happen. What a loss to frontline politics he is. Um, have you found any politicians who are good on TikTok? No, I think, um... Oh, God, the idea of politicians trying to be cool makes my armpits prickle with shame on their behalf. And Shaps's, uh stream in particular, you know, he's sort of trying, trying to kind of hop on to memes and trying to trying to do things that an older person desperately wants to do to seem a bit young and cool. And it's really, really cringy. Um, you know, fine to go into a coffee shop in Hatfield, um, as I watched him do this morning. But it's not interesting. It's not interesting. Just sort of don't do it. And the and the and and the thing of you know, clearly an aide or a helper of some kind is filming him. And the thing of turning suddenly to camera to say something impromptu and yet massively scripted. It's just so naff. Of the ones I've watched this morning, I've watched. Matt Hancock's, Grant Shapps's, Jeremy Corbyn's and Nadine Dorries. Nadine Dorries, um, soon to no longer be an MP, of course, is at least natural and looks and sounds like herself, holds her own phone, appears to be saying whatever's coming off the top of her head. And if you like that sort of thing, it's the best of them and occasionally even quite endearing jeremy corbyn is being filmed by somebody else and at least he's true to himself he's just looking grumpy all beardy and bespectacled saying join a union <laughs> or help refugees so at least that's that's what you expect it's the ones who are trying to be hip that just make me feel all hot in a not good way <laughs> i mean the ones because yeah a lot of the um, i'm just sort of flicking through mine nick fletcher in particular seems to upload every appearance in the house of commons um, which is, isn't Why? riveting. It's far from riveting. Uh, riveting watching. How many? How many? I've got. Oh, I've got four hundred and three followers now on TikTok. 
Um, I don't know if that's worth it, really. Uh, my best performing um, thing was, uh, what is that? The 10 political days of Christmas. Um, There's a fundamental problem with it because the point of TikTok is performance. Yes. And so by performing, you're wanting people to like you. And that's not a good position for an MP. It, st it starts looking very needy. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what James thinks. I think it's just well, not good. <laughs> yeah, I agree with India. I have to say that the one political TikTok I think is genuinely successful is Nadine Dorries's rap about the online safety bill. Ah, yeah. Oh, I missed that. that I would, well, I think we afternoon. might have that somewhere in the system. We could try to dig Very that out. Good. I've actually, I occasionally catch myself walking around the house singing things like... Singing things like what, James? You've gone. You've got, have you gone? Oh, gone. Sorry, I good to play it. I actually realised to my terror that I know some of the lyrics and I've been going around the house going, it's effectively a framework to protect internet users from scams, illegal <laughs> content and anonymous <laughs> abusers. Wow, I think we, let's take a listen. Let's take a, let's take a listen to the original. The UK is passing some new legislation to make the internet safer for the younger generation. It's effectively a framework to protect internet users from scams, illegal content, and anonymous abusers. Very good. Well done, James. Remember yeah. that. She needs a bit of beatboxing in there. It's a bit flat all on its own. Yeah. It, it, it sounds a bit like she didn't know it was going to be a rap. Somebody just got, to got her to read it out. She didn't notice it was rhyming. Um, anyway, I'm sure, I'm sure it's done very well and it's changed. So, yeah, I'm not sure it's a massive loss uh, if uh, politicians get off TikTok. Because you're right, there's something there's just something about the trying to be... I don't know what's worse than just uploading House of Commons videos or when they do start dancing and jigging about. Anyway, get off of it. That's the uh, that's the upshot of all of that. Um, let's talk about pensions. Whoop, whoop. Uh, this idea of a gold rush. Uh, dash to retire, says the front of the Times today. Dash to retire before Labour reverses pensions lifetime allowance plan. I thought the opposite might happen. That Basically, no one would bother with this if, if Labour were going to reverse it. So Jeremy Hunt has announced he's scrapping uh, the cap, the £1.07 million pounds, uh, that you're allowed to put in your pensions tax-free before you have to start paying tax on it. Um, and so there's this idea now that loads of people might rush to retire early because then you could seal your pots, unlimited, big as you like, uh, and everyone's going to retire um, before. Will you, will you be doing that, India? Um, no, I will not. I don't have a pension, actually, slightly alarmingly. Um, can I just ask, can you hear James? Because I can just hear weird grunts and, like, burp-sounding sounds. Are you burping, James? Yeah, that's my sound. I, oh, I I think I might yeah, be breaking up a bit. Yeah, you're. Um, turns out, James, you should have come into the office, shouldn't you? Rather than working from home. Yeah, it's my it's my fault. I shouldn't be working from home. <laughs> um, where were we? Oh, oh, pensions. Yes. Well, yeah. I understand. I think I think this happened with um, judges some year ago. Some years ago, possibly even under Labour. Yeah. There was an mm. issue with judges and their pensions. So lots of them just That's right. left. And I and I get it for judges and I get it for doctors. I get it much less um, at a time when the entire country is feeling broken and broke. I get it much less in terms of um, making already wealthy people uh, even wealthier. I don't understand that part of it. I don't think that's a good thing to do, um, given uh, the circumstances of most people in this country. Uh, doctors, fine. Everybody else. No, give the money to people who really need it. Also, it just seemed to come a little bit out of nowhere in as much as it wasn't like there was a huge campaign, as far as I could tell, from sort of angry Tory MPs and, you know, who who wanted something done about this. It's, it just, it feel, yeah, it just feels a bit like it's a lot of money. They're going to take a bit of political pain over it. Um, but yeah, maybe... Over, James, have you got a pension? I, I think I think I do. Not, not a very big one, but, you know, I, I'm young yet. I'm looking forward to many years of gainful employment at the time, slowly accumulating an enormous <laughs> nest egg upon which I'll retire in lavish style. That's my current plan anyway. Well, you need to get on with it. You've got to, you've got to take advantage of this. You've got to retire before 2025. Yeah, you've got two oh, years. Yeah. But <laughs> maybe, well, maybe, maybe, that, maybe, that should, maybe that should be my plan. We get your million pound. The golf course. Get your million pound. Yeah, well, yeah, and as soon as you're on the golf course, Mel Stride will be around to tell you to get off the golf course and get back to work. Now... It is Red Nose Day today, where, uh, you know, bring back guns. That's what I said. There's not enough guns in Red Nose Day. But, you know, celebrities and ordinary people doing something funny for money to raise uh, funds for people in the UK and around the world for comic relief. Of course, it started way back in 1998. 88. 88. 
Why else is uh, and, But political sp- sketches have long been a feature. As far as we know, Rishi Sunak's not doing anything for comic relief tonight. We'll have to uh, wait and see. But Siobhan Sinot is here to take us through some of the best and, as well, his worst of politicians doing uh, comic relief. Hi, Siobhan. Hello there, Matt. Now, um, uh, James and India can, can, uh, can guide us through this as well, uh, based yeah. on the fact we've just been discussing politicians on TikTok uh, and how that's embarrassing. Uh, yeah. Should we start with Tony Blair? This is Tony Blair when he got involved. Oh, God, my skin's calling just thinking about it. Tony Blair doing the sketch <laughs> with Catherine Tate. Let's take a listen. Lauren? Yeah? Am I bothered? What? Am I bothered, though? What'd you say? But I ain't bothered. Right, you can't say that. Look at my face. Right, what are you doing? Is my face bothered? No, wait a minute. Does my face look bothered, though? No, are you messing with my mind? Face bothered. Topshop, centre parks, trainers, small feet, rich tea, bandages, Ryan, please. I ain't bothered. Oh! Oh, God! It's worse than I remembered! To be fair, and this is back in 2007, he starts off in that sketch, I think, pretty well. Um, You know, he's... uh, Catherine Tate's schoolgirl character Lauren turns up in his office. You know he frowns and he mutters, and you know it's it's pretty convincing. The trouble really begins during that "Am I bothered?" routine. You can sort of see Tony Blair thinking, "I'm actually quite good at this, aren't I?" <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe being a great world statesman's not my calling. Maybe I'm a peerless comic talent instead. Wow. Uh, what do you make of that, India? Um, I thought it was brilliant. I th- it was my favourite one, I think. Yeah. Um, not that I've sat through dozens of them, if, if dozens of them exist. But he was very good. He was very committed. I, I, I take your point, um, absolutely, Siobhan, about him thinking, yeah, I'm quite good at this. You could sort of see that thought process occurring. But it was completely, it was it was to a very high standard, I feel. He yeah. properly um, engaged with the joke. Well, let's let's uh, let's do another one. This is Gordon Brown. There's a very long sketch where James Corden was playing the Smithy character from Gavin and Stacey, and in the sketch, Gordon Brown agrees to do a rap with the boy band JLS. Is there anything else? Because I've got a mate waiting in the car. Good. Meeting adjourned. Fancy a pint? Of course, bro. Let's bounce. <laughs> Fancy a pint? He's a one line. One yeah. line he had. Well, see, this makes Tony Blair look really good, doesn't it? <laughs> as ever. This this is 2011, and uh, as you say, it's a very long 30-minute sketch with uh, James Corden and a host of celebrities. Um, and, you know, he takes his lumps. I mean, there's there's a bit uh, where they refer to that radio mic business, um, and, and James Corden says, you know, uh, you can't go calling a malnourished African a, a Lester Piggott is going to do more harm than good. And But there's something about Gordon Brown when he's doing comedy that reminds you of, you know, when you try and teach dogs how to smile. <laughs> or indeed, when you try to teach Gordon Brown how to smile. Yeah. Went to that yeah. weird stage. James, did you enjoy Gordon Brown being amusing? Uh, no, not especially. I, I, I prefer Tony Blair. Although I do think there's a point that these things work a bit better when the kind of joke is that the person, the politician in the sketch is a person of immense authority and the yeah. joke is that they've kind of slightly lowered themselves and that's funny. When it's really bad is when the person has no authority, no authority at all in the first place and they're already kind of a joke, um, which is like, well, I think you get all those Matt Hancock TikToks you're watching. They're kind of cringy because, you know, it's just the whole thing is embarrassing. There's no kind of sense of, you know, <laughs> someone you know, kind of getting down with the kids for a moment and then getting back up. It's just all a mess. Um, but let's, let's continue our chore through uh, through Comic Relief. David Cameron appeared in a music video for One Direction uh, in 2013 and then in a parody of the hit show The Bodyguard in 2019. Uh, Joanna Lumley played the Prime Minister managed to get this dig in on uh, about Theresa May. I need you to be strong and stable. Are you up to it, David? I hope so, Mum. Not weak, not wobbly. Never. Oh my science! Um, suddenly, suddenly, I'm going to, I'm going to completely re, re, uh, rethink this. I think Tony Blair was excellent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, go on, these, are, these are less successful ones, aren't they? Um, and 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 also, this by this point, I think there's a kind of sense that um, politicians are going on to show you what a very good sport they are. I tended to prefer if you're going to have very odd 
uh, appearances of politicians in skits, that sense that they don't really know what they're letting themselves in for. Like when Norman St. John Stevis and David Arnest turned up in a video for Bananarama's Guilty, dancing back <laughs> up in the background. Uh, Pop reference for the young people there. Did you, well, James, did you, did you understand any of that? <laughs> no, that would have my head. Although it did make me recall uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Ali G. Yeah. Yeah. But that's. But I suppose that's the point, James. Is with, um, uh, with Ali G. It's it's the joke. They don't, they're not sort of necessarily in on the joke. Yes, and that's sort of that's kind of funny for a slightly different reason. It's more fun, probably. Do you know who I think would probably love to do something like Red Nose Day? I think Michael Gove would love it. Oh yeah. Can you you know Dancing. you would take your hand off yeah in order yeah, to yeah dancing that. a bit of physical comedy yeah yeah exactly yeah that I, would I, work. I think... Dancing with Mr. Bean. That's what they ought to get him doing. <laughs> now, Siobhan, um, you're, you're, you're a highly respected TV and film critic. Mm. Uh, where do you stand on the sad decline of gunge on the telly? The whole point of comic relief, I remember, like, you know, mm. the whole thing, the whole night was just built around whether or not they were going to gunge Andy Crane. There's not enough gunge on telly. Yeah, I think you you have to take it back to the decline of Tiswas in people's memories, and uh, and sadly, buckets of water and gunge are, are no longer playing the the, the masterful part in in comedy and, and and heritage comedy that they should do. Um, which is why I suppose we have to go further down and look at things like um, the Now TV channel, where they show Kenny Everett gunging people. So yeah. at least you've got your comfort zone. Some you can get your comfort somewhere, Matt. But yeah, yeah, bring back the guns. The thing is that, that there isn't a program, there isn't a single TV program that wouldn't be improved by guns. <laughs> just guns. Whenever it went on too long, or someone got boring, or something improbable happened, or someone told a lie, you could just gunge them, and then ratings would go up. The BBC would be saved, <laughs> hurrah! And it would be the solution to everything. My, my, my mind's yeah, immediately question, gone to question time. If Question Time had guns, I'd watch Dungeon. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the audience could vote or, you know, maybe actually people in the audience, if people in the audience ask a stupid question, they should be gunged. That that would hugely improve. Oh, gosh, that would be so good. <laughs> James, I mean, you... we've got a Scottish political uh, leadership election and guns would definitely... That's a good that. idea. Well, I'll tell that you what, be an asset. Times Radio's got a debate on Tuesday. I'm going to speak to Asma oh. Mir. That's what we need. Asma needs to go up with three colours of gunge. Lovely to speak to uh, Siobhan there and India Night and James Marriott. Of course, you can read them in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox and subscribe right now. Up next is David Owen. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So we're going all the way back to 1981. Four titans of British politics quit the Labour Party and formed the Social Democratic Party. They were known, of course, as the Gang of Four. The former Chancellor, Roy Jenkins, Transport Secretary Bill Rogers, Education Secretary Shirley Williams, and the former Foreign Secretary, David Owen. Now, of course, Lord Owen. It was a landmark moment, a rejection of Michael Foote's left-wing Labour and the birth, they hoped, of a new centrist movement. Two years later, 35 years ago this month, in fact, the SDP merged with the Liberal, with the Liberal Party to form 
the Liberal Democrats. The experiment uh, didn't work. Well, I've been talking to David Owen about the Gang of Four and its legacy on politics today. About becoming Foreign Secretary just 38 years old. Imagine being Foreign Secretary at 38. And his theory of hubris syndrome. The Prime Ministers, including Tony Blair, who he thinks uh, end up losing the plot. But I started by asking him about his early life and whether he came from a political background. I was standing there with my grandfather, who was a clergyman in the Church of Wales, blind from the age of 11. And the dockyard mates looked at my father and him and said, he can't see anything. Why don't we carry him over our heads and take him to the front? And they did exactly that. I went right to the front, being carried over their heads, <laughs> and left my father and my grandfather. My grandfather wanted Anarim Bevan to be prime minister. And is that where you got the political bug? I suppose so. I used to think that nobody was very much involved in politics in my family. That was a tremendous error. My mother was a genuine independent on Devon County Council for 25 years and an alderman. But actually, when I look back over my Welsh family, uh, one of my uh, great-grandfathers on the Llewellyn side was chairman of Glamorganshire County Council as a Liberal for 25 years. So I've got a long pedigree, but I was quite unaware of it. There's politics in your blood. So it was, nine, it was what, 16 years later you first stood in Plymouth for Labour in 1966. Um, you felt you were up against Betty Boothroyd to become the candidate there. For the candidate. Yeah. And afterwards, the women came to me and they said, uh, Betty Boothroyd made a much better speech than I did, you did. And I said, well, why do you vote for me? Oh, we're patients of your father. My father's <laughs> a GP in Plymouth. <laughs> so I owe it all to him. That's what, that's what swung it. Um, and you were a doctor before as well. I was a serious doctor. In fact, I, ser I still am. You can be as rude as you like to me about my politics, <laughs> but you can't be rude to me about my medical career. And I'm very proud of doing over two and a half years of serious research into the chemistry of the brain with one of the most brilliant researchers, David Marsden. I think working alongside him must have somehow... But I never really decided to go and become an MP, even when I fought in Plymouth Sutton in 66. I never thought I was going to win. The previous Labour candidate, John Dunwoody, had given it up and was standing in uh, Falmouth and Camborne. In fact, I was shortlisted for that. It was far too far away. I was unmarried and it was easier to be a candidate as in Plymouth. So it's my home city. Yeah. You know, I, I am a Plymouthian, born and bred. I'm the longest serving MP in its history. When did you realise you were politician instead of or as well as being a being a doctor did you ever think I'm all right okay I'm not a doctor right now well I think I can actually relate to it I didn't do any political position I didn't join any party at Cambridge although I was very actively involved and we just had the Suez crisis and then the invasion of Hungary and I was very active and I took a lot of interest in the debates about politics whether they were in the then Great St Mary's Church, or whether it was in um, the, um, I forgot now the name of it, it was a grouping of people debating issues under E.M. Forster. But I came back to St Thomas's, it was 1959, I'd voted for Hugh Gateskill, it was very sad that he didn't become the Prime Minister, and I heard him say on the radio, there are too many armchair politicians. And I thought, that's me. So I'll join the Labour Party. It took me nearly three weeks around Lambeth before the Labour Party was actually open to join. But I joined and I never regretted it. And quite a rise. I mean, it's interesting you say about debating foreign affairs, especially when you're at Cambridge, because then at the age of only 38, you became Foreign Secretary in 1977. 38 is very young to be Foreign Secretary. Yes, and it was a tricky problems I had. They were mainly in Africa, and I had not, never been to Africa. So the first thing to do, apart from going to meet President Carter with Jim Callaghan in Washington, was to get on a policy, and I was the architect, really, of the American-British uh, initiative over uh, Africa, I took a view that we would not be able to deal with all the problems, South Africa, uh, of course, Southern Rhodesia, the big issue, but also problems with Cubans in Angola and elsewhere without the clout of America. 
Now, a negotiated ceasefire has eluded uh, many, many people who've tried it. It's the hardest thing to achieve, and particularly when uh, neither army is totally defeated. But no British government will commit a resident commissioner out here into Rhodesia until they're satisfied on the law and order arrangements, that they're satisfied that we really can have fair and free elections, and that the end result will be a stable Zimbabwe government. And I worked very closely with Cyrus Vance, who was the US Secretary of State, and Carter himself was very keen on Africa and dealing with apartheid. And so it was a constructive period and very active period. And we had great successes, there's no doubt about that. We passed the first UN resolution uh, allowing uh, to consider what was happening in uh, South Africa and in Rhodesia as a threat to the peace. And we were then able to use sanctions. And how do you, as a 38-year-old, people listening to this either are 38 or remember when they're 38, in your 30s, suddenly going into, I don't know, the boss's office is quite an intimidating thing. Being 38 and going into the White House or going into the, gov the governments of you know, foreign countries. How do you cope with that? Was it, did you have supreme self-confidence? I think medicine does help you, you know. You're, when you first qualify, I was uh, just 23, and uh, I was making decisions of life and death, straight out as a house physician, a house surgeon. And I think you mature pretty rapidly. Medical students are well known for being wild, and I had my wild period, but you suddenly wake up when you're a qualified doctor, and I think it's a very quick growth in your personality and your seriousness, and you have to take decisions quickly. You have to weigh up conflicting evidence. Not too diff different from being Foreign Secretary, really. Was there anyone you were particularly intimidated by during that period? Not really. I was amazed how Jimmy Carter, because he was interested, would chair meetings that would normally have in the State Department with Cy Vance. He was there in the chair, and I would be opposite him. He took no uh, side, no, he didn't feel he, the Prime Minister had to be there. Yeah. Yeah, he was quite happy for me to lead our delegation and to discuss policy and argue it through. So I had a lot of respect for Carter, and still do, I may say. I don't join in all the criticism of him. I think he started serious human rights policies and serious issues in Africa. All that previously everybody was talking about weighted votings and A rolls and B rolls. I said straight out, that's all over. This is going to be one person, one vote. When you were this sort of high-flying uh, foreign secretary, there was lots of talk. You were you were a good-looking, glamorous politician. You were a film star. I think it was Matinee Idol people talked about. You seem oh, destined. That's you a bit seem, far. That's well, a bit far. I'm allowed to say that, even if you're, yeah, then you're, you're obliged to disagree. Um, you seem destined to become Prime Minister. Did you think that that was a trajectory that you were on? For a very short time I did. Uh, I can remember when I ceased to be dominated by it. There was a terrific demand to hold a Lancaster House conference on the constitutional question of Rhodesia. And I wanted it, the Prime Minister wanted it. And two older men came to see me, very distinguished uh, uh, people. One had been the former Chief of Defence, Mike Carver, and the other was a very senior diplomat. And they said to me, you always said you'd never hold the Lancaster House conference until you knew it would be a success. They didn't need to then say, you know, it yeah. won't be a success. And I said, let me think about it. And I thought about it and stood looking out at St. James's Park. And I then set out to convince, firstly, Jim Callaghan that the time was not right and that we had to wait. And eventually that Lancaster House conference came under Peter Carrington uh, a little over a year later and that was the right time for it. And we'd always known we had to go to Lusaka first and get it sorted. And I consider that was a decision which made me realize that I was not essential that I became prime minister. That stage, as a young foreign secretary, I knew your main job was to do what was right. And sometimes that doesn't... And leaving Labour uh, also, of course, made it clear that I wouldn't do it. 
we left, I left the Labour Party, clearly very differently for most of the others, and particularly the Gang of Four. I left Labour because I believe they had to get rid of the left, get rid of them. Corbyn's continued existence showed that Blair never got rid of the left. And you have got to deal with this problem of the left. And I have not much time for people who compromise with Corbyn. He was definitely, and uh, his other chief sidekick, um, they, were, they were trots. They were people on far left. We knew what they were, and they were there still, after all those years, for goodness sake. And until that happens in the Labour Party, there'll always be a question mark over them. I thought it was best to have a group outside the party and a group inside, and Roy Hattersley and I differed on that at the time. Now we're good friends, and you, you had to have both. You had to have the fight inside the party and show people you could have a party on the outside also determined to do the same. But we got into bed with the Liberals. And as soon as we got to bed with the Liberals, we lost our you know, essential, uh, crucial point to our existence was we were a new party. And gradually that image of us being eroded with an alliance and sharing seats and everything like changed. We, I was ready to fight to build a party and it was probably going to take 10 or 15 years before it became the government of the country and probably wouldn't have had me as Prime Minister even <laughs> by then. Um, it's interesting, when, when you sort of look, we talk about Lancaster House and the big, you know, summits and events that happen that sort of go down in history, you're probably one of the few politicians whose own house uh, has secured its, its place in, in history. Limehouse, the Limehouse Declaration. Yes, my wife typed it. She's very proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> Explain. She says she's still the only SDP member. <laughs> <laughs> still there. A lot of women came into the SDP. I think we did one really big change for British politics. A lot of women came for the first time into political engagement. Now you see them and they often talk to me. They're conservative, liberal or Labour. Explain how it happened. The, the, why, why was it the Limehouse Declaration? A complete nonsense? accident. It could well have been in Bill Rogers' house yeah. two days before. But it, we decided to wait until after the conference decision, which gave the power of the trade union to le choose the prime minister of the country. And I think that uh, in retrospect, we had a recent very interesting event in the election of Liz Truss. And the answer is you need to make either the general public in an election choose a prime minister or the MPs who know them. And we should not go on with this uh, half-ass solution of party members actually being able to choose. They very often make the wrong choice and there's very clear and obvious fact they should never have chosen this trust. And the same is true with Jeremy Corbyn. The what, you know, the of course, and it goes on inside the Labour Party. Yeah. And they'll, they haven't really changed the system. What I think they should do now is Labour and Conservative and Liberal MPs to make this change, that if you have a vacancy for a Prime Minister in the middle of a Parliament, then it's the MPs. And all do it, and all scrap it. It's not worked. Yeah. And if you need any uh, question about it, just look at Liz Truss. Prime Minister, for somebody said rather unkindly, if you took out all the days of what was happening with the death of the Queen and everything like that. Uh, they said uh, 13 days, the, the lifetime of a lettuce. Yeah. And here she is drawing a, a extra money as Prime Minister, attending, it's absurd. She's hardly there for a day or more. You know, I, there's some big lessons, constitutional lessons of what has happened over the last few months. And I don't expect the parliament will get to grips with it. It's high time they did. You, um, you talked about your, your medical uh, study um, of, uh, let's talk about hu your hubris syndrome theory. And explain first of all what it is and who you think of the Prime Ministers you've come well, across. Well it's a Greek word and it's when people get above themselves. It's when they uh, get on a high or um, people understand it, you know. And I chose the Greek word because I didn't want to say they were, they're not mad, it's not a mental illness in that sense, nor are they deranged. And they exist in lots of walks of life, 
power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, said Lord Acton. It's been known about for a long time, and I think it's, we're pretty close now, the neuroscientists of today, to getting a pharmacological and neuroscientific explanation of it, that under the stress of office, big office, these people tend to get carried away, and they think they are, Liz Truss was described by people acting regally, like a queen. <laughs> and I think she's a classic case of it. Uh, you just get out of control, power goes to your head, and we need to be aware of it. It occurs in all walks of life. It's in business probably even more than in politics. And uh, I have written a lot of serious research in articles in Brain and elsewhere. We created a Daedalus Trust to examine it, and uh, I helped put quite a lot of money in to get research done. A lot of books have been written about it now, but still politicians <laughs> ignore it. And they don't look for it. Is there something about politics that attracts the sort of people who yes. have? That, is that the problem? Of course, yes. <laughs> but that's the same in business. Yeah. People who like to lead in the armed services too. And without a certain readiness to take decisions and to live with the consequences and sometimes making mistakes. But it's the level of mistakes, you know. I mean, it is unbelievable really still that somebody like Liz Truss could have believed with all the massive debts this country has that we could go and ask people to lend us more money when we were going to give tax concessions to the rich. Somebody wrote the other day, the last time we did that was 50 years ago. That must be 1973 under Ted Heath. You, you, if you're a broke, you have to be aware of the fact that people want some good reasons to go on investing in you. And if they see you acting in a slapdash, uh, cocky, insensitive way, they'll withdraw their money, and that's what happened. So we are now in the position where international confidence is rather fragile, and this government is dealing with that, and it's getting better, and thank goodness. But uh, they also are responsible uh, for what was done. After all, they were elected trust, not the MPs, and certainly yeah. the party. Um, given the number of Prime Ministers you've seen, particularly up close, Callaghan, Thatcher, Major, Blair, Brown, Cameron, May, Johnson, I'm just trying to remember them all, Johnson, Truss, have they all had uh, hubris? Oh, no, no. Callaghan didn't have hubris. Uh, John Major doesn't have hubris. Uh, I mean, I've just chosen two people who clearly yeah. didn't have it. Clem Attlee never had hubris. And uh, I think it's... Uh, very little sign that uh, our present Prime Minister has hubris. I don't think so. And so I think that, uh, you know, it's a rare issue and you, it usually comes out, as I say, on a background of being in power for a while. And if we're right, the stress is the fundamental thing, then it possibly takes a little time before that stress manifests itself in, if you like, a pharmacological change in the brain. And we shouldn't be too upset about that. As is, after all, we, our brains are a pretty remarkable feature anyhow, that they may have a little bit extra chemicals under some circumstances like stress. It's pretty obvious. It's a good case for having term limits. That actually, if we look at, particularly, I suppose, Thatcher and Blair are the most obvious ones to look at. Clearly, by the end, they went on and on and on to the point of... If, if they, they, they developed hubris towards yeah. the end. The Thatcherites find this very hard to understand. But, I mean, she was thrown out by her cabinet. And she definitely, only in the latter years, actually, I don't think she had it very early on. More, I would say, the last two years it started to develop. And Blair didn't have it initially. I think it started after his first victory. I think his first period in office, first four years, were excellent. I, and I've got no complaints at all. But the decision on Iraq put him under great strain, and he was seeing, putting British soldiers' lives at risk, perfectly understandable. And I think he started to believe himself. And uh, you know, I, I, I once had dinner with him, and uh, just the four of us with wives, in the middle of the crisis. And I, you know, I said to him, are you sure they're nuclear weapons? After all, we've taken them away once from Iraq, 
and we, the UN went in, found them, and got rid of them. Are you sure they are? He absolutely. He was talking to me on privy council terms. I know now what intelligence he had at the same time. It was abs absurd to pretend on that rather skimpy intelligence that there were nuclear weapons. Certainly not to go to war for them. But he was still sure. He felt yes, sure. He, he was absolutely certain. Yeah. He, you couldn't shake him. And um, oh, I mean, it, it, it was a tragedy, really. I mean, he had many, many talents. As I say, had a very, very good first term. It started to go wrong, actually. Some of his reforms in the National Health Service were quite ridiculous. And we're living with the dangers of them now. So he was often his uh, feeling of he had to do things and everything like that. Once you find that restless energy, you, hubris is not very far away. <laughs> let me take you back to uh, let me take you back to Limehouse. Um, tell me who was in the room. Who was in your this extraordinary moment? Obviously, remember it wasn't. I mean, you know this, well, but no, other people was, might not. It was the, a gang of four. Yeah, uh, that was uh, myself, Bill Rogers, Shirley Williams, and Roy Jenkins. And my wife, with the rest of them, we pushed away. But they came in later, the assistants and everybody like that. So it was just the four of us, really. We got pretty close, as I say, at a meeting at Bill's, which could have used a, a declaration, but didn't. And then, so it was an accident, really. And um, one I'm rather proud of, but I have no real reason to. It was, it was just my turn to have the next meeting. And how did you mark it? Was there cups of tea or champagne? Or how do you, how do you, do you feel like you're in the middle of an historic moment? We didn't have a drink, I don't think. I mean, the most interesting part of it was Shirley was unhappy about some of the wording. And so we, she said, oh, I'm on the one o'clock news. So we turned on the one o'clock news around this round table in our kitchen. And there was Shirley, positive as hell, as she often was, give her a microphone and all those things. And, and we all started to laugh. And she agreed, she laughed too. We said, what you said, Shirley, our wording is mild in comparison. <laughs> we just, just said on the world at once. And so we laughed and she gave up her reservations. And so we went, went with it, you know. I mean, it, it was perfectly clear to many of us that we would end up with a new party. Fellow Social Democrats, when I look at this audience and I see this packed hall, and some of you I fear with no seats outside, I begin to sense the power and the force of the principles and the beliefs in social democracy that I believe are going to sweep this country. What was not clear? which we'd end up immediately almost in an alliance with the Liberals. And that was the problem of Roy Jenkins. You know, we've got to be honest about it. He was a Liberal by then. And we, the three of us, started off as a gang of three. If we'd launched it as a gang of three, we would never have made that deep, deep-seated mistake of confusing people about what we were by sort of being in bed with the Liberals. All the evidence, and we took a lot of polling evidence, so all the advice was, whatever you do, don't lose the image of being a new party, because people are fed up with the old party. And actually there were parallels with what happened with the independent group when the Labour MPs left under Jeremy Corbyn. Then they brought in Tory MPs and it sort of yes. muddied the waters as to what it was all about. Subri and others, yeah, yes, yeah. of course they tarnished the image immediately. I think it was a great shame because some of those were very able people. Uh, whether that was quite the same uh, dis public disgust with the Labour Party. It was pretty strong both times, all the time because of the left. And even now, the so-called moderates in the Labour Party better face up to it. They're going to have trouble. I mean, look at it now with these strikes. They can't face up to the fact that we haven't got the money to pay out. That's the problem. Now, I can argue about when it should be as soon as possible for the nurses, obviously, and many other people. People's disposable income has been reduced for a long period of time. And David Cameron and Osborne are very largely responsible for the austerity, the steady reduction in living standards. But at this moment, we have got to keep international confidence. It's as simple as that. And going on spending money outside the normal yearly settlements and destroying the pay boards, you can you could make sensible changes in the pay boards, the good things, 
but they've become, they've lost their independence. They're called independent, but it's perfectly clear that successive governments have chipped away on that independence. And to have the trust back in that system, you've got to appoint people who are known to be independent and will be prepared to advise a pay rise that the government might not like. Well, then they've got to fight against the pay board. But don't neuter the pay board and get them to be your servants and then talk about its independence. And we've done that. And that's been going on for about 15 years. Do you think Keir Starmer's got what it takes to do that? I don't know. That's up to uh, everybody in the Labour Party to decide. I'm not a member of the Labour Party and I'm not even allowed to vote. So I tend to stay out now of the party politics of choosing. If uh, Sunak does something sensible, I'll support it. If Starmer says something sensible, I think it's a very good thing, for example, that both Starmer and uh, Sunak have said they're not going to go back into the EU. Can you imagine anything more ridiculous than a parliament that voted for a referendum then spent three years trying to get rid of the independent uh, of, of the result of the referendum. I've never felt more angry or disgusted by Parliament that couldn't live with the referendum result. The idea of going now into another referendum, we have to focus now on one thing, economic growth and prosperity and reducing our massive debts. We've been lying to the world about our debts. Our debts are much greater than people will face up to. And the responsibility for that is Labour and Conservative. It's, um, I noticed it's, it's 40 years this year since you became leader of the SDP. Um, and I wondered at what point you went from the, the optimism of the Limehouse Declaration around your kitchen table to realising this wasn't going according to the plan that you'd, you'd hoped for. Well, I knew by the time I became leader yeah. that we were, I was saddled with an alliance. We fought an alliance. It was very difficult to do it. Actually, I have no problems with David Steele. He wanted to be a liberal, and I wanted to be a social democrat. This is probably the last day of the Liberal Party as a separate and distinct identity. And of course, for many, this is therefore a day of, uh, tinged with some sadness. And both of us were confined almost by what had happened before. Anyhow, it's no use crying over silk milk. All I would say, if anybody's ever thinking of forming a party again, don't land yourself immediately, almost, into bed with another political party. Fight for your party and fight for it on principles. And therefore, be very wary about having people saw every form of party. Britain has a new political party, the Social and Liberal Democrats. The merger between the Liberals and Social Democrats was given the final go-ahead in a postal ballot of members. We were social democrats. I remain a social democrat. I am quite proud of being on the left. And I am fighting for the NHS at this moment. And I wish a lot more people would. The idea that you should give up the structure of the national health. I, my father was a general practitioner. When we, the NHS was created, it was a day of freedom. He didn't have to ask for anybody to pay anything. The one people who wouldn't were gypsies. They didn't believe they'd had a consultation unless silver passed the hat. So my father would say, okay, give me half a crown. <laughs> and people should be, somebody now should write the social history of the 20s and the 30s and see what the disastrous healthcare was. My father used to be ashamed of it. Now he, he would be outraged and upset to know that we were even contemplating getting rid of the NHS. And that's what a lot of all this, you know, charging here and charging there and all this sort of stuff. Look at the German system. Look at the German system. It's in serious trouble. Look at the French system. It too is in serious trouble. All governments have not spent enough on the health care. I am very clear that you should have a hypothecated health tax and people should know that what you put into it is going just to help and pensioners should pay for it too. We've, we protect pensioners very considerably. I'm 84. I, a lot of my friends, and not very wealthy friends, want as pensioners to be able to help the National Health Service. They use it more than anybody else. 
And I think you'd find there would be a new tax group of rich pensioners who would prefer to be taxed if they knew the money was just going to healthcare. Hypothecated. Um, you talk about being a social democrat. Do you think Keir Starmer is a social democrat? Oh, I think he definitely is. Yes. I, 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 I'm always rather against questioning people's uh, political allegiance if they join a political party and they do that. And I think he couldn't join a political party while he was director of prosecu uh, public prosecutor. I think he's a man of distinction and they were lucky to have somebody like that. The people I'm also particularly pleased to labor at the moment is Rachel Reeves. Uh, she never took office under Corbyn. That took guts. She's got guts and intelligence. And I think if Labour comes into power, it will be a massive help to have a woman who has worked in the Bank of England, understands the complexities of our debt and all the problems, intricate problems of international fans. She could hold international confidence in the same way that Jeremy Hunt and Sunak are doing at the moment. So I think it's a great help for Labour to have somebody who is very well qualified to do the job, has a record of courage, and it will, in my view, if she was to become Chancellor, be very good. Do you think it's possible for a proper Social Democrat to win in Britain? Or do you have to compromise with the electorate in order to get to Downing Street? Politics is the art of compromise, so you can't be, uh, if you're a social democrat, you can't be against compromise. It's built into its ethics, its ethos. You are, after all, trying to do the right thing, but get enough votes to be in a position to do it. And that means you have to listen to people. But I don't think compromise is a dirty word. I, I don't understand it. I, 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 it's the lifeblood of democratic politics, whether you're on the Conservative or not, and, and, or Labour. And good Conservatives have the same qualities. You know, I always think that Margaret Thatcher was often most underestimated by her own party. She was much more realistic than they were much readier to compromise. She had this language, the Iron Lady. Take the miners' strike. Well, that was first coming under Joe Gormley. She told her energy secretary, pay up. She built up the reserves. She could see uh, Arthur Scargill in the skies, and she got ready for a serious strike. And she won it because she had her coal reserves. Now, that's serious, pragmatic thinking. She was many ways a pragmatist. Uh, uh, she had other faults and other strengths, but sometimes your faults and your strengths go together. She was a big fan of yours. Um, uh, and it, well, at one point she said you were wasting your life. Well, she said to my wife, why doesn't he, in number 10, and Debbie turned to her and said, uh, Margaret, why don't you speak to David? He's here beside me. So what, she said that to... She said it to my wife. While you were stood why, there. Why doesn't David join the Conservative Party? <laughs> there was never the slightest possibility that I would ever join the Conservative Party. I came into politics from the left, watching the housing very close around here at St Thomas's. Those days, uh, Lambeth, and deeper into Lambeth, uh, housing was dreadful. I remember delivering a baby in a house in which the woman was in the bed and the bed went up to the window. I had to sit on the windowsill, lifting the window to put my posterior out through the window so I could catch the baby like that. Now, when I was admitting from the Royal Waterloo Hospital children into the children's ward, the first job I had, wonderful job, I was admitting them off the street the questions I was asking the people, what are the housing conditions? And my, time after time, you were bringing them in because there was no inside lavatory and no running hot water or gross overcrowding. And that's what made me a socialist. Uh, that's what made me really committed to socialism, um, was that you, could, you needed to change politically. Uh, we'd had 13 year, long, weary years of Tory misrule. Well, the first place, of course, I stood while I was a doctor, I couldn't possibly win, Torrington, North Devon. Yeah. We used to call Appledore the, the Gibraltar, solid Tory. And um, all I could do was save my deposit. And I did save my deposit. And the Tories cheered when my little pile got <laughs> higher. 
and the liberals booed. Some people say that's why I view the liberals. <laughs> <laughs> so you, do, you don't agree with Margaret Thatcher's assessment? You, you didn't waste your life? I don't think I've wasted my life in any way at all. I've had a very happy life and uh, I haven't always made the right decisions, haven't always done the right things. Uh, I'm f three children, four grandchildren, uh, and uh, you know, I can't complain at all. I've had a very, very, I was in business for a long time, a long time in Russia incidentally. Yeah. I then took, you know, if you're going to business late, go where others fear to tread. And for a while with Yeltsin there, it was a very exciting period and I thought Russia could make it. We didn't help Yeltsin enough. Uh, he was a brave man and he, we could have done a lot more, America in particular, walked away and we should have, what they brought to uh, Russia was corruption in big business and we didn't bring enough sensible investment and wise money. But there we are, we'll have to try again once Mr Putin leaves us. And what's your, your personal, well, there's obviously lots of political regrets and what Britain hasn't done, but do you, do you have any regrets on your career? Oh yes, I regret that I couldn't rescue the SDP. Uh, I tried very hard, but uh, I knew it would be very difficult. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I just think, you know, I, I think you have to change in life. I mean, I used to believe very strongly in Europe and I still do for them. I just don't think it suited Britain. Which is why you, you back to leave. Uh, and I back leave after a lot of hard thinking and uh, I, I felt that it was the right time to go and to retain control of our lives and our country. And that was Hugh Gateskill who said, a thousand years of history. And we have got too long a history to be put into a, a, a decision-making of now over 30 countries. You look at that, sir, you can't govern. You, we each are answerable for our own government. They, if they, Europe is going to succeed, six or seven or eight or nine of the bigger countries should become a Europe, a country called Europe. I don't want that, but I think that's the right thing for them to do. You can't make decisions in a structure as large as that. And now you have a government in this country and uh, before, I mean, Boris Johnson deserves a lot of praise for the handling of Ukraine. He saw the dangers, he made the decisions, we were helping them even before the war started. And I think that's good. And I'm sure if we'd had a Labour government at that time, whoever had been the Labour leader would have done the same. And on these big issues, NATO, terrific success. How many people disparage Macron? talked about only three years ago that NATO was brain dead. Well, it's made the most amazing adaptation of a long-standing uh, defense organization and we have to be careful. We will not cross the line to World War III. We are not going in to fight Russia in Ukraine. It's not cowardice, it's just simply foolish. Uh, the Ukrainians want to fight we're entitled to help them fight, but not by being there as being part of it. This is not our war, and we can encourage them to negotiate, encourage them to negotiate perhaps a little earlier than they're ready to, and I would certainly do that. Don't always leave it to them. They need help, yeah. and that help is to, uh, with weapons and ammunition and also with political sense. You know, I spent two and a half years of my life as the EU negotiator in the Balkans. Now you see these characters, you understand what an incredibly difficult task just to get them in the same room as each other. But it you, peacemaking is still quite rightly viewed as a very, very high priority and we have never forget it even in the midst of war. Ending where we began then, well, all the way back to 1950, you first got the taste of, taste of politics. You call yourself a social democrat. You don't have a vote, obviously, because you are in the House of Lords. If you did have a vote, how do you think you'd vote in the next election? I'm not going to tell you, because I don't have to vote. Therefore, why spend my time? <laughs> I would prefer to feel, yeah, I'm quite yeah. open about it. I would prefer to feel that people can read what I say or hear what I do, and I'd still write a bit, and I've written a long thing about the British economy at the moment, which will come out in a few weeks' time. 
that people might listen to it from the Tories, Liberals or Labour easier if they don't know that I'm going to vote for X or Y. So I'm not going to go into the next election well, at the moment, telling people how to vote. My feeling is that uh, I've done enough of that. I might have a, a vote amongst my grandchildren. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.